0: Even blue what do you do we got stories to see you through that time of the month that time of the month need a fix come get your kicks we got tales by kooky chicks that time of the month that time of
1: the month hello everybody and welcome to that time of the month Uh, I'm Melanie Vare, and I give yourselves all a big round of applause for coming out and supporting live storytelling. And I hit record, yay! Last month I did not hit record. Um, (laughs) Yes. And can I have a big round of applause for all of these wonderful storytellers sitting behind me who are um, extremely talented writers, and I'm so thrilled that they're all here, and... uh, we have, we have actually, you guys get more for your money tonight because I have new mommy brain and accidentally uh, picked uh, seven stories instead of our usual six, but hey, they're all such great stories that I don't think you'll complain, um, and uh, so this month's theme is role play, And we actually decided on this uh, topic based on a story I received from Patsy and Herman Lawson, who are sitting back here. They're going to do this fantastic tandem uh, piece at the end of the show. Um, And one thing that also wanted me to um, pick this topic was an email I received from my mom. Whenever my parents go out of the country, we get these crazy emails. This one is, the subject is, travel time means last will and testament time. So uh, they were going to Ireland. And, um, so I got this email that said, um, Melanie and Tiffany, that's my sister and I, just in case this is the end for me and dad, I hope, (laughs) I hope everything in our trust book is in order and you can find all of our millions, haha. I'll see if I can get dad to update the list today as it is all spread out. Basically just split it all in half, no favorites. If I am... And if I am the only one to perish on this trip, it is my intention that half of my, half of our money goes to my daughters, and not for him to spend on his floozy girlfriend or next wife. <laughs> <laughs> and then she adds, "Who he only loves because of her blowjobs."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> she gets none of my money after I worked my fingers to the bone bone and ruin my posture and even erase my fingerprints. She's a medical transcriber. (laughs) Pounding on my computer keys for 35 years and doing a job I hated. That bitch gets nothing. (laughs) Maybe you guys could save this memo for my next big trip, just in case I don't die so I don't have to write this each time. (laughs) Love always, mom slash Suzanne Reno for legal terms. <laughs> and um, to show you the other talent of my mothers, um, I'm going to bring up uh, Ethley Ann Ver, who is a very accomplished uh, writer. She's a published writer, she's a successful television writer, and she's a great mother in law. Please welcome to the stage Ethley Ann Vare.
2: And compete with that floozy's blowjobs. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Mel, and welcome. Huh. So, I'm from Los Angeles, and let me tell you two notable features of Beverly Hills High School. First, it has an oil well in the parking lot, a real working oil well. Beverly Hills High School makes more than half a million dollars a year from the oil well in the parking lot. This is one PTA that never has to hold a bake sale. (laughs) Second, the real-life students at Beverly Hills High School look better than the actors who play them on television. (laughs) This is because for the last hundred years, the best-looking boys in Boston and the most beautiful babes in Boise have been migrating to Hollywood to make it in show business, and when they inevitably don't make it in show business... They stick around and procreate. Los Angeles is chock-a-block with gorgeous gas station attendants, stunning supermarket stock boys, exquisite ER nurses, and their children. And their children's children. And their children's children's children. So when I found myself at Beverly Hills High School Parents' Night, I looked around the auditorium with its festive bunting and its hopeful science displays, and all I could think was... Oh, my God, there are so many cute boys here. (laughs) And then I remembered, oh, damn, I'm one of the parents. (laughs) So here's the thing. I'm only in disguise as an adult. I'm not talking about 40 is the new 50 or 50 is the new 30 or how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? I know how old I am. I'm four. Okay, I'm somewhere between 4 and 11 and 3 quarters. (laughs) Left to my own devices, I bite my nails, I swing my legs, I twirl my hair like a kindergartner. I still read lying on my stomach on the floor, kicking my legs. Waiting in line is torture for me. When you turn around in your airplane seat or your theater seat to scold that fidgety child behind you. (laughs) Yeah, that's me. (laughs) My favorite color is glitter. (laughs) Failing that neon. I want to wear false eyelashes made of silver tinsel, and I'm still searching for a pair of running shoes that have those soles that light up when you jump on them. (laughs) Only they don't come in my size. There are Fruit Loops in my cupboard, and there is Hawaiian Punch in my refrigerator, and it is not for guests. It's mine. Uh, this is um, this. Uh, hold on. I'm going to show you my favorite scarf in a minute, but first I have to explain to you that I am actually in disguise as a grown up tonight. I have to pay people to put my outfits together for me because when I dress like I want to dress, I end up looking like graffiti. Tonight, I am in disguise as Melanie's mother-in-law, but really, this is my natural state of being, and this is my favorite (laughs) scarf, and it's excellent insulation. For you listening to the podcast at home, those are black and white checkerboard leggings and a black and white feather boa, a black and orange feather boa. I, I have a black and white one, too. Now, see, I have w- written award-winning books about women scientists and inventors. I have written books about pop culture figures and books about addiction and recoveries, and I am a visiting professor at important universities. God bless you. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm only posing as an adult. I still expect you to set up the card table for me for me and the other kids at Thanksgiving dinner.
0: <laughs>
2: now, it turns out there's an actual cognitive issue underlying all of this. <laughs> I am not, as current jargon has it, neuronormative. My prefrontal cortex has a case of arrested development. My brain's executive function is funked up. Some people's reward centers get hotwired early on, and we never learn to take that all-important detour through the gray matter where you weigh evidence and make decisions. My eyes say, that looks like fun, and the next thing you know, my body is jumping out of an airplane. My head never gets a word in edgewise. You're cute. Let's get married. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, in big girl world, there are stages in between these concepts. Now, there are things I did without thinking twice that I'm really happy about. I'm actually glad I jumped out of that airplane, and I'm glad I swam with those sharks. I'm sorry I married that drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry I painted my living room midnight ebony. (laughs) It turns out that once you go black, you can never go back. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But on balance, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Isn't the worst thing to have on your tombstone? I wouldn't be a mother-in-law if it weren't for one of of my ill-conceived marriages, and I have to tell you that Russell Alexander Vare is far and away the best brainstorm I ever had. Now, anyone who knows us knows that my son is far and away the more mature of the two of us. I really only pretend to be an adult in the first place for his sake because a boy deserves a mom. You know, For instance, let me take you back to Beverly Hills High School. Russell comes home one day during senior year, and he tells me he wants to get his tongue pierced. Now, I know my role as a parent. Never let anyone make a decision at 17. They're going to have to live with it at 40. I say, no, your tongue will get infected. Do I believe this? It doesn't matter. I know what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) You'll break a tooth. People will think you're a gay prostitute. (laughs) You'll never be president. (laughs) Russell looks somewhat askance at the woman who talked his father into letting him skip class to go backstage to the Metallica concert Uh, you didn't mind when I dyed my hair blue he says hair grows back I say you know when I turn 18 I won't need your permission he says fine if you still want to do something that foolish when you're 18 I'll walk you into the parlor and I will pay for it myself we spend the next nine months posting opposing arguments on the refrigerator door with magnets. I'll see your tongue infection findings and I'll raise you an American Dental Association study.
0: <laughs>
2: on his 18th birthday, I walked Russell into the Pearson parlor and paid for his tongue bar. He got to tell all of his friends, like my tongue jewelry, my mother paid for it. <laughs> A week later, he dared me to get a tattoo, and without a second thought, (laughs) I got the shock outline of a dead body tattooed on my shoulder. (laughs) So, what can I tell you? It seemed like a good idea at the time. So, my son knows that I'm just a big kid, but I think he also knows that he can rely on me to be a pretty good make-believe adult. My prefrontal cortex may, always and forever at the card table with the rest of the kids but at least my body and my hands are at the kitchen sink doing the dishes with all you grown-ups
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks
1: Ethlene Vere aka mother-in-law in disguise how cool is it that I have her for mother-in-law? Uh, and she was so cute. Last night there were tons of dishes and she was like, oh, I guess I should get in there and do dishes because it's in my story for tomorrow night. Uh, so she really did do dishes. So thank you for that for writing that part. Uh, our next storyteller um, is kind of like Chris's mentor. Um, she is a fabulous lady who uh, she is the, I love the the name of the um, of your your chief of wordy yes, chief chief of wordy operations at a novel idea, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's this great organization that teaches uh, helps young people write their first novel and um, kind of build literacy, and it's, it's wonderful. So anyways, without further ado, ado we're very um, thrilled to have Tama Tappan here tonight. Is this up too high? Yeah. Um, no, and go right up to it. Oh. Can you hear them? Don't be shy. Yes,
3: This is an autobiographical piece named The Evolving Roles of Women searching for a hero, one song at a time. <laughs> Ever since I can remember, music has been my constant companion. Every day, melodies fill my head while lyrics dance around me in perfect rhythm. When I was a young girl, I bought 45 records and kept them safely tucked away in my Holly Hobby record case. Alone in my bedroom, surrounded by hues of pink, I would take one out, remove the paper sleeves, and play my favorite over and over again. Perfect. Life was good. Until it wasn't. My daddy died. I couldn't believe it. I was numb. Who was I? What was I to do? My daddy was gone. Gradually, I started playing the songs that daddy loved. Songs by Jack Green, Timmy Euro. Over the years, my melodic friend helped ease the pain as I slowly learned to accept my new role, learning to live without my hero. Later in high school, visions of white lace and promises swirled in my head like wisps of clouds on a bright summer day, singing along with Karen Carpenter and imagining my future Prince Charm. The scenario always included a storybook dollhouse, chair-faced children, And, of course, the obligatory dog stretched out in front of his fireplace. At 22 years old, I was living my childhood dream. I was married to a man who thought I was cute as a button. He took me on a European honeymoon, bought me a big old house and a pretty car. Soon, those chair-faced babies arrived. Two of them, a boy and a girl. Perfect. Life was good. Until it wasn't. The door to my dollhouse blew off. He found someone else. After five short years, here I was, a single mom now. Again, I couldn't believe it. I was numb. Now who am I? What will I do? I wasn't married anymore. Nonetheless, there I stood with my two chair-faced babies, needing me now to play the role of both Mama and Daddy. Oh yes, not to mention that obligatory dog. Two of them now, wagging, at, wagging their tails at me, looking at me with trust pooling in their eyes. So off I went to find a job. Unfortunately, I didn't finish college. I um, didn't get married instead, and I was terrified. Who in the world would want to hire me? I didn't have any skills. But soon I found myself interviewing for a secretarial position. <laughs> I didn't know anything about being a secretary. Just what I saw in the movies. Pretty girls, dressed to the nines, always smiling. Oh yeah, and pick coffee to someone. I could do that. <laughs>
0: Didn't
3: they ask if I could type? And I replied, Well, yeah. Mr. Johnson, with squinted eyes, looked at me and said, How many words a minute? I sat up a little straighter and said very enthusiastically, a few? He laughed. And he said, I like your attitude. When can you start? Fake it till you make it, girl. So each morning I would put on my big girl panties, hop into the car, pop into the cassette player, Glory Gaynor's song, I Will Survive. I sang it as loud as I could every morning. Did you think I would crumble? Did you think I would lay down and die? Oh, no, no. I will survive. I played that song at full volume over and over and over again until I convinced myself I could do this, and I did. Gradually working my way up to the video marketing department. Stop it, (laughs) Tama.
0: I had learned
3: that my attitude was useful, not to mention my gift of gab. A few years later, I was offered an opportunity to start a business in the music industry. A jingle company, (laughs) oh my God, a jingle company, music. I loved music. I didn't know the first thing about the business, but I knew how to sell a concept and that people liked me. A business was born located in the heart of music row. My partner and I produced jingles for ad agencies located from one end of this country to the other. I brought the business in the front door He wrote, produced them, and sent them out the back. Magic. Fast forward to 1993, and that partner became my husband. At our wedding, Louis Armstrong sang, What a wonderful world. And I walked down the aisle to Jimmy Durante, belting out, Make Someone Happy. (laughs) Music surrounded me. Here I was, 39 years old, and once again married. Legitimate, For 20 years, I sold my husband's talents. And one day, I decided to retire my high heels and take care of some unfinished business. At nearly 50 years old, I went back to college. <laughs> I walked with my son. We graduated on the very same day. I didn't plan it that way. But oh my gosh, what an enchanted afternoon. Afterwards, my daughter threw us a party like no other. It was a So here I was, bona fide. Finally, a college graduate with time on my hands now to do what I wanted whenever I wanted to do it. I was free to bake. I was free to plant a garden and do lunch. I was free to be a decorator, a wedding planner, a shower giver, and finally, grandmother extraordinaire. One day, my daughter had an epiphany and started a creative writing enrichment program for kids here in Nashville. She named it a novel idea. She taught kids the art of novel writing. Kristen was convinced that a few well-placed dreams could alter the orbit of a young person's life. Completing a novel would give kids a sense of accomplishment and drive to find out what they could do next. Awesome. I loved it. Perfect. Life was good. Until it wasn't. My husband died. As fate would have it, two weeks after my husband died, Kristen's husband was offered a dream job in San Francisco, California. And before I knew it, off they went west. A few years earlier, my son had moved to New York City. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Who in the world am I now? What exactly does a widow do? Yet here I was, with 59 years, looking me right in the face, saying, What's next, Hannah? And then an amazing thing happened. I found myself sitting up a little straight and saying very enthusiastically, Taylor, this time you don't need to be afraid. This time, don't be numb. This time, you can be legitimate all by yourself. You've found your hero. And she's five feet tall with silly. Hmm... Who in Nashville would carry on the mission of a novel idea now? A mission of empowering the voices of children. A mission of teaching children to be the best that they could be. A mission to eject those inner editors so that nothing and no one can ever, ever, ever hold them back. I have an idea who. And I think I hear some music playing in the background. <laughs>
1: In.
0: Big round of
1: oh, That was amazing. You're now my mentor too, my writing mentor, and I'm hiring you to be my life coach. I don't know if you do that kind of thing, but I okay. She's going to start that. If anyone else would like to sign up, I'll, I'll pass around. With. Okay. Um, oh my goodness, that was amazing. I told you guys these are some good stories. Wow. Okay, but we are going to keep the show going. Um, our next lady, the first time she did the show, I always thought she was kind of like um, reserved and I don't know. And <laughs> she did the show and just blew everyone away. She is hilarious and she's such a talented writer. And she was the editor of this, here, where is it? Um, okay. this fantastic anthology of southern fiction and humor called Not So Fast. And there's a car stuck in, up on a. Um, is this a tree or a um, or a telephone pole? It's just up on a pole. Oh, it's just up on a pole. Just <laughs> a pole. please welcome back to the stage. We're thrilled she's back, Miss Lily Wilson.
4: How many of y'all grew up going to church? Let's
0: see.
4: Okay. Anybody go more than once a week? More than three times a week? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then you know the culture that this story takes place in. And those of you who did not grow up going to church, imagine a culture where everybody goes at least twice a week, some more, unless they're hospitalized. That's where it happens. Okay. Okay. To paraphrase Shakespeare, some are born to roles, some achieve roles, and some back into them, like a drunken chimpanzee with the keys to a Hummer. (laughs) I'll let you all determine which one of those happens in this story. (laughs) One snowy evening, I sat in a Mustang in the church parking lot. With my friend Kay and others, listening to Cat Stevens and smoking pot during the moments between handbell (laughs) fire and the snack supper for the youth group. Somehow, we misplaced a small bag of marijuana. There was much tossing about of coats, general confusion, and a growing eagerness to go eat. (laughs) By and by, the missing bag became less important than food And off we went, thinking it would turn up later During the evening devotional, we learned (laughs) That you receive 1,014 gifts when you accept Jesus as Savior Things like eternal life and forgiveness. Kay and I began a list. Ours had a back mat depicting the nativity
0: scene. (laughs) And
4: Adam and Eve loincloths. Days later, the snow melted. The bag was found. The cops were called. Regrettably, the bag also contained a permission slip for a <laughs> dental appointment. <laughs> she gave the police my
0: name.
4: <laughs> I remember riding the bus home from school that day. I came in the back door, dipped a bowl of ice cream, and was summoned to the living room where two plainclothesmen sat. My mother introduced them, using the gravelly voice normally reserved for talking about God or sex. <laughs> My ice cream melted while they asked questions, and eventually I admitted we bought the pot, but would not say where. There's a word for a person who turns in others. Narc. That was not me. I had honor. <laughs> After the cops left, I was grounded from everything but school, church, and the nursing home I would enter at age 89. (laughs) My father yelled with flecks of spit slime. You will tell me where you got that dope. I know you're protecting your friends. They're not your friends. They would shit on you. It's all part of the stupid, phony drug subculture. I'd never heard him say shit before. <laughs> Had I
0: come, that?
4: The police informed the pastor of the church that yes, this was marijuana in their parking lot traced to a young lady in their youth group. Me. At the deacons' meeting, the minister raised the alarm. Drugs. Pushers. Needles, addicts, a shy, skinny, adolescent menace in our midst. The deacons were a somber lot, but they rose to the challenge. Those 12 set to spreading the news with a speed and zeal that put flames up the sides of their (laughs) Bibles. Jesus would have been high-fiving his own 12 if they'd been so thorough and efficient. (laughs) (laughs) The following Sunday, I sat alone behind the youth group, writing more gifts of salvation on my bulletin. It gave me something to do, and maybe people thought I was taking notes on the sermon. Kay's mom reached the only conclusion possible for a terrified parent with her head in the sand. Lily was a dangerous influence on her daughter. Kay was forbidden to associate with me. This, of course, made us best friends instantly. (laughs) But we had to sneak. We couldn't sit together at church or talk on the phone. And her brother spied on us in youth group to be sure we didn't laugh or chat. I was the bad kid. And she was a good girl who had to be protected from me. The rest of the youth group iced me out. I was a pretty terrifying 14-year-old. <laughs> Nobody wondered who might have been enjoying that bag of pot with me. Did they really think I brought it to church and in a solitary stoned haze flung it into the parking lot as part of an evil scheme?
0: <laughs>
4: but I couldn't protest. I wasn't a narc. I stumbled on alone with my bad self. Between Sundays and Wednesdays, Kay and I wrote each other letters and added to the gifts of salvation. (laughs) We left pages behind the trash in the bathroom for each other to retrieve. Later, we became bold enough to rendezvous, entering the ladies' room separately and going into adjacent stalls to talk over the wall. Our Sunday school teacher... A stern, miserable British immigrant
0: <laughs>
4: noticed that we spent time in the bathroom together. This woman, perturbed in a nostril flaring kind of way by American culture in general, had a bone to pick with us in particular. We'd been disrupting her Sunday school class, whispering, giggling, asking impertinent questions. She put out the word that we were fooling about together in the bathroom she planted this seed with other teachers and directly with Kay's mom she knew better than to say that to mine neither Kay nor I had ever known a real lesbian it seemed exotic I wasn't sure exactly what it might involve but the accusation was thrilling (laughs) at first Kay's mama, Mrs. Fawn, called up a bunch of people with the news. Although my life was collapsing with each new accusation, I couldn't help but laugh at her, throwing buckets of shit into the fan, spreading gossip at her own daughter. I guess she wanted to get the word out about whose fault it was. She even called up my mother and unloaded, but without actually using the word lesbian. Nobody at church could choke that out my mother lectured in a croaky voice again her chin lowered looking over her glasses at me both sorrowful and seething at the same time she asked if there was something I wanted to tell her I could hardly say the teacher's just mad because we've been raising hell in Sunday school to me that was a worse offense because I'd actually done it So I said, I'm not a lesbian. (laughs) Well, something has caused this gossip, she said. She was deeply ashamed that there was a rumor going around about her daughter and sex. Any kind of sex. (laughs) My father's face went deep maroon and he bellowed and roared and swore he'd sue Kay's mom for libel, slander, and defamation. All the years in Sunday school helped me identify what was now happening in my home. It was Armageddon. (laughs) Still, it was good to be accused of something that required two people. So it wouldn't all be on me. Kay and I were in trouble together now. Yet somehow it spun into a web of drugs, lesbianism, and brimstone. That wasn't my fault. Half the church was now on ladies' room watch, so we could no longer talk there. The following fall, Kay skipped school with her boyfriend and his sister. The three of them took some LSD and were hanging out at Kay's house while her parents were at work. I was neither invited nor told about this plan. I was conjugating verbs in Spanish class. And no, that's not a euphemism. (laughs) While Kay and her boyfriend frolicked naked in the bed of her childhood. Posters of the Lorax and Jimi Hendrix looking on. The sister had found Mrs. Vaughn's wig collection and was doing animal impersonations in the bathroom (laughs) mirror. She was pretending to be a hedgehog <laughs> when Mrs. Vaughn came busting through the kitchen door. <laughs> when I heard about it later, I was delighted.
0: <laughs>
4: Finally, I wasn't the only bad kid. Case mom didn't see it that way. <laughs> this too was somehow caused by my evil influence. <laughs> I was mad. I hadn't even been invited to the mess I made. One Sunday, not too long after, as I returned a note under the pew to Kay, the youth director motioned for me to follow her. I wadded up the note and stuffed it in my mouth as I walked. In the foyer, she held out her hand in front of my mouth. I chomped the note a few times and spit it out. I She unfolded the soggy paper and read, Number 314, Moses in the bulrush's baby cradle. (laughs) (laughs) Number 315, reserved seats on the Judgment Day bleachers. (laughs) (laughs) I am so disappointed she said by that time I knew how it was going to go and it flashed through my tiny teenage brain to say lady I could turn you into a car stealing fornicating heroin addict (laughs) (laughs) I did not say it though instead I replied don't worry There's over 1,000 gifts of salvation. (laughs) You're bound to like some of them. Her face said, not lightly. From the distance of years, I can see how frightened those adults were. The world was changing. Their whole way of life was threatened. Each night, they heard Walter Cronkite on the news talk about hippies, protests, riots, free love, People define conventions that they either held dear or had bled from the soul trying to hold dear. There might be crazy people in California, but this would not happen in the Bible Belt. They were scared, and it was easier to point at the bad kid than it was to admit that the ground was rumbling under their feet. A lot has changed, thank God. But I'm pretty sure I've still got those same powers to influence people. (laughs) I should have warned y'all before you listened to me. (laughs) So in the days to come, if you should find yourself with the urge to try on somebody's wigs without permission, (laughs) take drugs, have a bathroom affair, Change your sexual orientation (laughs) or get reserved seats on the Judgment Day bleachers. Well, you can thank me. And I say, You're welcome.
1: (laughs) The very exotic Lily Wilson, give a big round of applause. Never disappoint. <laughs> at this point in the show, I want to bring out, bring onto the stage our token man. There is, the, Bob Clark has a long history with this show. He, His goal in life, um, well, his, his recent goal has been to be the token man at that time of the month. But so far, he's been on the all man show. He's been in a show where there were three men and three women. And now he's, he's so close to being the token man, but we have a tandem story that includes Mr. <laughs> uh, Herman Lawson. Sorry, so, yes, I'm sorry about that too. But he, in, in my in my eyes, he is the token man. Um, so please welcome Mr. Bob Clark. <clears throat>
5: On September 10, 2007, the Chicago court extended my emergency guardianship powers over my 18-year-old autistic nephew, Jimmy. This allowed me to take him home to Tennessee. We drove from the courthouse straight to his residential treatment center, packed up, and headed back to Nashville. I had plenty of time to think on the road. I knew my life would be very different, forever. I'm not the best fit for de facto parent of an autistic person, to put it mildly. For one, I rarely put things mildly. (laughs) I was barely patient enough for my high school honors and AP physics students, but I knew that I had to try. After a hectic day in court and packing, I was too tired to make it all the way to Nashville. I hoped that arriving home on 9-11 was not an omen. Over the years, my nephew has had enough diagnoses to fill up a good-sized paragraph. I always thought that he didn't really fit into any of them, so they kept trying to find new labels. I consider his three primary diagnoses as autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, and intellectual disabilities. For a long time, I was skeptical of the autism diagnosis because he's more social than I am. He talks and talks and talks. He needs to talk more than any human being I've ever seen, which seemed to be the opposite of autism for me. But he has the obsession part covered, wood and trees, Christmas, bonus points for Christmas trees, weather and audio technology, especially old storage formats like cassettes, vinyl, reel-to-reel, and most of all, 8-track tapes. One odd thing about my nephew that belies all his misfortune in life is his incredible enthusiasm, which I also don't associate with autism. So he never quite fit the labels to me. He was Jimmy. He had a chronic case of Jimmyitis. that's all. But autism is a spectrum, and when I watched the movie about the remarkable Temple Grandin, I saw the similarities. From then on, I was convinced that he was somewhere on the spectrum. No matter how you label him, Jimmy's always been a handful. He was permanently expelled from the Essex County, Virginia school system in the fourth grade. They said they couldn't provide a free and appropriate education. I've seen the records and reports, and I don't blame him. For one week, he was a Tasmanian devil, slapping, biting, and cussing everyone within range. He's calmed down a lot since then. I had to give the Chicago court a plan for what he'd do in Nashville. They were big on plans. My only educational option was Hillsboro High School. He hadn't been in a public school since his exodus in the fourth grade in rural Virginia. I didn't think he could last long at Hillsboro, but I didn't have a better plan. Sure enough, within weeks, he'd had a couple of fights with students at Hillsborough, and he was suspended for two days. I asked him why he hit the boy, and he said he was annoying. I read him the riot act, desperately trying to make him understand how much trouble hitting people had caused him during his life. I told him he couldn't do it anymore, period. I told him the same things many times before he moved to Nashville. There were other conflicts during those early months. I read lots of frustrated, desperate variations of the riot act, but he eventually began to settle in at Hillsboro. Then, against all odds, he started to thrive. They have a wonderful special needs program there. I believe that's the biggest reason for a success. Hillsborough also offered a class called Audio Technology. That certainly didn't hurt. As an assignment, Jimmy made a CD of himself singing. A teacher heard it, and he was soon in the chorus. Someone else heard him singing to himself, and weeks later he was belting out how sweet it is at the Belmont Curve Center at a pencil foundation luncheon, receiving a standing ovation. By then... May of 2009, he'd already exceeded my wildest expectations many times over. He developed a fixation on sports and became a regular fixture at Hillsborough football and basketball games. He won a senior school spirit award. He was chosen fan of the year for boys basketball, the year after he graduated. Who could have predicted that someone like Jimmy could have found a nurturing environment at some place like Hillsboro? Not me. Frankly, given his previous history, his success there was preposterous. Beyond their superb special needs program and the fact that they sold Christmas trees on school grounds during the holidays, I have no explanation. I certainly take no credit. But things weren't typically as warm and fuzzy at home. Jimmy is the only human being in the world who is forced to live with me. That's not an easy burden to bear, just ask my ex-wife. One day I noticed that the back door was slightly ajar, which was odd because I never used it. I found out that Jimmy had sneaked out in the middle of the night to watch snow flurries. Remember, weather is one of his big obsessions. I explained to him why he absolutely could not do this. He was endangering himself and me by wandering around outside at all hours of the night and leaving the door unlocked. I put a piece of tape on the door so I could see if he do- disobeyed me, which he did. I went ballistic. I told him he couldn't live with me if he didn't follow my rules. He'd have to pl- find somewhere else. I knew that wasn't the best thing to say to someone like him who'd been through so much chaos and instability in his life. You probably couldn't find an expert to endorse that kind of ultimatum. but well, that's what I did, and I meant it, too. I ended up nailing a piece of wood across that door and for a while I slept on a couch pushed up against the other door. I wish I could say this was our only major flare-up but we had them often enough during those early years that we had a turn for them. Armageddon. That's not much of an exaggeration. But Jimmy's enthusiasm is a force in nature that can't be contained for long. Nothing in this crazy world has crushed his irrational exuberance. I was certainly no match. Jimmy also tends to hyper-focus on his health and body, which sometimes leads to unexpected results. Just a few months after moving to Nashville, we went on a January backpacking trip in the mountains of West Virginia with his old reading tutor. We spent the first night deep in the woods, far away from man-made lighting and other conveniences. In the middle of the night, Jimmy woke us up to tell us that he'd gone blind. I turned on my camping headlamp inside the tent to demonstrate that he was mistaken. <laughs> Even so, he asked to borrow my headlamp so he could make sure he was still not blind throughout the night. No. Jimmy's singing opportunities continued to blossom in Nashville. He often sings a national anthem around town, such as at the OBC Vince Basketball Tournament last March. The most insane singing opportunity Jimmy had was as one of Darius Rucker's backup singers, at the Academy of Country Music Awards show in Las Vegas in 2011. Yeah. The day of the show, a friend sent me a message that she had just seen Jimmy interviewed live on the red carpet on the Great American Country Network. Jimmy also has an amateur radio transmitter transmitter that he uses to broadcast from his bedroom on 103.9 FM. I make him get permission from the musicians before playing their songs on the air. Even so, he has accumulated quite a library, including everything Amy Grant has written and performed. As you can see, in many ways, Jimmy has led a charmed life in Nashville. He just keeps walking in opportunities that I have nothing to do with, such as when a shortwave radio station broadcasts a recording of him singing into China, India, and other parts of Asia. We bought a receiver from Radio Shack, and I built an extra antenna out of wire, to try to pick up the broadcast in July 2012. We went to Big Hill in Nashville late at night, and I spread my wires out on the ground. We barely heard, through the crackle of interference, Jimmy's voice as it was being transmitted across Asia and to who knows where else. This was one of those times when Jimmy's enthusiasm rubbed off on me. As I listened to my nephew, hardly discernible above the static, I wonder how many others were listening at that same time, and what effect he was having on them. Given their success in previous—sorry, previous, uh, given their success in recent years, perhaps it was inevitable that Jimmy became fixated on Vanderbilt football. This year, notwithstanding, of course, <laughs> he sometimes monitors Twitter feeds late into the night for the latest recruiting rumors. By midsummer, his excitement for the upcoming season can't be contained. I tell him I don't really want to talk about football in July. I'm perfectly happy to wait until the week of the first game. Sometimes I have to tell him again, not so politely. I hate to admit that we once had an Armageddon-level argument over when we could start talking about football, (laughs) but somehow we've made it work. Like his success at Hillsborough and Nashville and so many other things in Jimmy's life, it defies any conventional explanation. Still, I was recently reminded of the challenge of someone like me taking care of someone like Jimmy. Just this past week, in fact, I took him to the Vanderbilt Emergency Room last Sunday with a 103.4 degree temperature. He was diagnosed with a flu and a trace of pneumonia, and he had a bad reaction to the antibiotic they prescribed. Unfortunately, it was a perfect storm. For a couple of days last week, no one, and I mean no one, convince him that he didn't have Ebola <laughs> I'll spare you the gory details but last week was every bit as challenging as the time I nailed the back door shut maybe even more so yet if I add up all our experiences and tally the books I think Jimmy has given me more than I've given him in our partnership I really do despite my innate grouchiness some of his irrational exuberance occasionally rubs off on me Jimmy itis is contagious and even those of us with the strongest resistance are susceptible. He can lift me up in ways that he'll never understand, even if I don't feel like talking about Vanderbilt football in July. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
1: Bob Clark, give a big round of applause. This month's stories were particular, particular, you know, very moving. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> Anyways, uh, on that note, we're gonna keep the show rolling. Um, this next lady, I am thrilled she's here because she is the. Am I going in the right order? Yes, because she is a mother of three, including. Uh, twins of uh, who are ten months old, and she had to have like an army of people come to her house today just so she could be here with us. So give her a big <laughs> round of applause before she yeah. comes to the stage just for being here. Um, yeah. And how's your other child side? Oh, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. I have one. Um, So, anyways, I am thrilled that she is here. She's also a guidance counselor at a high school, so she has got a lot of kids to deal with here. Um, But we're thrilled she's here tonight, so please welcome to the stage for the first time, Kristen Cherry. Thank you.
6: Since I work at a high school, um, that last story was like really, really good. I love that, because I meet kids like that. Well, not exactly like that, but a little bit like that sometimes. And sometimes you wonder, like, how they're going to find their place and how they're going to make it, and that's such a good good example of it. It gives us a little hope. Um, this is my first time doing this, and I can already tell you that the first lesson I have learned is to use larger font next time. <laughs> I should have brought my readers. Um, I'm going to give it my best shot. I think I can do it. Um, I go into girly shops all the time, and I see those little plaques and coasters and greeting cards and dish towels, pretty much anything that can be seen with the naked eye and can fit a snappy saying on it, (laughs) Um, at least one of which always says, well-behaved women never make history. I immediately began making a mental list of the women who have made history, and I realized that they did indeed break the rules, big ones, like saying women should be allowed to vote or fighting in a men's army, or being a witch, um, the usual. And I start to think to myself, will I make history? You know, am I doing it? I search my mind desperately for an example of how I've misbehaved and broken the rules, and then I find it. The thing that sets me apart from the rule-following non-history-making females of our day I refuse to ask for directions. (laughs) It's true. I am a rebel, and I will likely burn at the stake. (laughs) uh... My sense of direction is not my strong suit, and I pay little to no attention to the road if someone else is driving. I stare out the window at a sunset, I contemplate life, or my reflection in the side-view mirror, wondering just exactly how much larger are things than they appear? And <laughs> <laughs> um, about how Me love song, Objects in the Rearview Mirror, is really moving. But when, but when he wrote it, he actually misquoted the mirror. Okay? If you don't know this song, he says, An objects in the rearview mirror made up your clothes, and then, they are. and then if you don't know, go out to your car after you get done and actually read what it says. He was wrong. Okay? <laughs> Good song, though. Good song. So I stare and I contemplate, and the next thing you know, we're there. Wherever there happens to be, and I have no clue how we got there. I only learn the actual route if I'm driving. Therefore, I drive and I commit myself to having a learning experience. <laughs> but only when my husband isn't around or when we're driving a long way. He claims to be a terrible passenger, so he never lets me drive. I would argue with that because it seems that while he is asleep and snoring when I drive, he quite enjoys passengering <laughs> So I'm driving, and when I'm faced with a choice that there is, let's say, a 50-50 chance of getting right, um, I am going to go the wrong way with the consistency that defies all odds, I always turn the wrong way. And sometimes I go a very long way before I will admit I have done so. And rather than just bite the bullet and turn around like a normal person, I take a chance on another road that may be a shortcut back to where I need to be, because I loathe the idea of backtracking. It is highly inefficient. At this point, I am what most people would call lost. Rumor has it that there are ways to remedy lostness, but I also loathe the idea of asking for directions. <laughs> so now I'm sure many of you are thinking that this should be a non-issue What with the GPS and the smartphones and the garments and all this stuff. But then you'd be right. If I was a person who could be counted on to have one of those and to have it charged in my vehicles, I do own them. I do. I'm I'm in this century. But somewhere between forty and fifty percent of the time, um, I'm without the technology to show me the way, and henceforth also without a compass, because I also defy odds by always buying a car that doesn't have a compass on it. I thought they all did, and now they don't. Regardless of what I have, what I don't have, I will not ask for directions. And I, being a person who typically runs about five minutes late, um, even when I know the route, I arrive in a very overheated, pulse-elevated state everywhere I go because I was a little (laughs) nervous. Um, After all, I have just emerged from being this close to a very unsavory part of town. I'm not built for unsavory parts of town. Um, Or like running out of gas in the middle of nowhere. Or, God forbid, you combine the two and you run out of gas in a very unsavory part of town. Okay, I could do this. Um, But I tell no one, I tell no one that that was my experience, and I act like I'm just fashionably late and all is well. And instead, I tell myself that I now, having successfully successfully driven to my destination, will never forget how to get there. This proves I'm independent and tenacious, and at some point, may allow me to prove that I can survive alone in the wilderness with not but a half-bottle of water, the stale goldfish hiding beneath my third-row seats, and a nail file. There are stale goldfish and other things. Don't go in there. Incidentally, my my own refusal to ask for directions translates into an instant lack of respect for anyone who does ask. I'm sorry. Their street cred goes down about tenfold each time I witness this type of behavior. I respect my husband tremendously, but if both of us agree that we don't know exactly how to get somewhere... Before we're even late, he pulls over to a gas station and he asks for directions. Come on. I mean, what kind of problem-solving sol- problem skill does this indicate? As soon as something gets tough, you ask for help, you can't even fight through it for a little while? Aren't you a man? Didn't your father teach you how not to show weakness? And this all reflects poorly on me. I am not lost, and I would like for the gas station attendant to be very clear on that point. <laughs> I knew exactly where I was going. So... Flashback, or actually go back to the beginning. I'm still in that shop, okay? The aforementioned, the little girly shop with the things. And now I'm seeing this tea towel, and I don't even know what a tea towel is for, Um, but it's a towel. And it says, if it had been three wise women, they would have asked directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, brought practical gifts, and there would be peace on earth. Okay, so now I'm very confused because which one is better? Do I make history? Do I, you know, by misbehaving? Or do I, you know, get it all together and bring a casserole and stuff? Should I break out of the well behaved female mold, join the ranks of the true history makers, and continue my quest for enlightenment by boldly finding my own way from point A to point B? Or do I conform to the Three Wise Women philosophy and do I only do what is responsible? That does sound comfortable, but is it a requirement? Could I continue my rebellion, venturing to parts unknown, bypassing chance after chance to learn the most direct way to my destination? (laughs) Could I never ask for directions when I feel lost, even if the idea makes other people cringe with paralyzing anxiety? Let them cringe, I say. I'll be just sitting over here in the driver's seat, sweating, and making history.
1: <laughs> Kristen Cherry give her a big one. of yeah. um, okay we're going to keep it going because I know it's kind This next lady, uh, you may have seen her writing in the Nashville scene. She's uh, contributed to uh, Vodka Yannick, which is the wonderful syndicated women's column that we featured on our show last month. Um, She's also an editor for In Focus, and uh, we are thrilled that she's here tonight. Please welcome, for the first time to the stage, Nancy Floyd.
7: Uh, This is a piece I wrote for Mother's Day called All My Mothers. I didn't have a mother growing up. I had five. The last time I saw my mom, I was seven. It was a Monday in April, the first official day of spring break, and my brother, sister, and I were spending the day at our Aunt Rita's house while my parents worked. A day of babysitting turned into an overnight, and my mom rushed in on her lunch break to drop off clothes for us. She remembered my brother's elf duffel bag, very important, and my sister's hug-a-pillow, as she called it. She ate peas off my plate while Rita's back was turned. Our conversation and our goodbye were insignificant and unmemorable, as they often are when you don't realize they'll be your last. That night, while my brother, sister, and I slept safely on Rita's pull-out sofa, across town, our family home caught fire. Our parents never made it out. Tuesday morning, found me an orphan. A little girl without a daddy, a daughter without a mother. In the immediate aftermath of my parents' death, I longed for my mom. I missed the function of her, the role that she played in my life. When I got violently ill from the shock, I wanted her to bring me flat 7-up. When I woke up with recurring nightmares, tangled in sheets and panting for breath, I wanted her to soothe me back to sleep. And when I needed to buy a dress for a funeral, it was her hand that I longed to hold as we trudged through department stores. I just wanted my mom. It's a feeling that hasn't waned much in the past 26 years. Fortunately, I wasn't alone in those moments. There was an army of women surrounding me, taking care of my needs. My grandparents, being the poster children for Irish Catholic immigrants in the mid 20th century, had 12 kids, six boys and six girls. So there was no shortage of family to care for us. My mom's five sisters didn't even take a moment's pause before jumping in and performing her duties. They dabbed my head with a washcloth to ward off the sickness and rocked me to sleep to stave off the nightmares. They led me through department stores to replace all that was lost in the fire and even let let me help pick out the dress that my mom would be buried in. They all had daughters of their own. They knew how to mother. As I got older, I faced a new grief. It was no longer about what my mom did, but who she was. This time, I grieved for the mother I would never know. In those moments, my aunts were there, too and they had something that could never be communicated with an old story or photograph. They all had a part of my mom with them, in them. They were six unique patterns cut from the same cloth. Instead of being raised by one woman with all of her strengths and flaws, I had the distinct privilege of gleaning wisdom from five mothers. Margie, whose face I can't picture without seeing a smile, taught me to greet every one of life's unexpected surprises, even the most trying ones, with joy. Even as she battled MS and later terminal cancer, she was light and laughter and hope all the time. Rosie has always possessed an unlimited supply of enthusiasm for even the most unimpressive of beats. When I started a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Club, as you do when you're nine in 1990, she volunteered to make the colored face masks. When she read the first book I ever wrote at the age of eight, which was a riveting tale about a cow and a mouse that was very aptly titled the cow and the mouse, she practically submitted it for Pulitzer consideration, and when I decided to try my hand at writing for real, she read everything I wrote and piled on endless praise, even when I definitely didn't deserve it. Her endless support inspired me to be fearless in my pursuits. Eileen taught me to have fun and have faith, even in the most desperate of circumstances, because if you can't make up secret languages or perform sock skating routines in your kitchen, what's the point of life anyway? Rita imparted the importance of making your voice heard. Now, as the youngest of the 12 kids, this was often a literal directive as being the loudest is the only way to get anyone's attention in our family, but she also demonstrated the importance of letting people know how you feel. Life's too short to let things go unsaid. And then there was Teresa, my mom's closest confidant and our legal guardian. Teresa is, without question, the craziest lady I've ever met and also one of the most loving. She got her wardrobe at like solely at kiosks in the mall and her home decor from trash cans and garage sales. We had half of a boat, uh, picture this with me, we had half of a boat positioned to look as though it was sinking into our front yard, um, <laughs> which was like kind of a landmark in our town, and a tuxedo-clad skeleton in an old-fashioned barber chair in the middle of our living room. She had a you live approach to injuries and a who-the-hell-cares response to boy woes. Through the most unconventional of methods, she taught me to be a strong and confident woman, content with who I am, and unconcerned with other people's opinions. I miss my mom every day, but I'm so grateful for all the women I've been able to learn from along the way. And this is a tribute to all the moms out there, biological or otherwise, who help scared little girls become brave women.
1: Nancy Floyd. Love your aunts. so wonderful. Okay, and we've come to that time in the show uh, with our, our final story. How are you guys doing? I've been doing all right out there. Um, right, These stories have just really blown me away tonight. How about you, Emily? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, I got I know. I uh, know. What? Anna Annula. Okay, well this next story is what um, uh, inspired this whole topic, and they never disappoint. They are an extremely talented um, storytelling duo and individually. Um, We are so thrilled to have you guys back and telling this fantastic story that was very inspiring to me when I heard you read it live. And uh, please welcome Patsy Hadfield Lawson and Herman Lawson.
8: (laughs) Okay, it this way, okay. All right, which side we can't ever make decisions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys, okay. good? good. right, good that that'll good? work. Okay, the year was 1971, the place was an eastern Kentucky coal mining town in Harlan County. Herman and I found ourselves in this foreign coal mining environment because Herman was taking his first college teaching job at Southeast Community College following graduate school. We were accustomed to mountains and mountain lifestyles, but not coal mining. At the time, I did not want a career because Mama said the most important job for a woman was to be an educated mother for her children. That year... There were several new faculty members and faculty wives. All of us trying to fit in and adapt the best way we could to this foreign environment. One wife in particular stood out, Inta Carpenter. She was the dynamic wife of the new Eng- of a new English professor from Indiana University, and ready to find her way with her two young children as a back to basic hippie mother complete with natural childbirth, breastfeeding, organic foods, and weekly pot smoking. (laughs) One day, ENTA invited several of the professor wives and female college employees to a consciousness-raising group. I'd never heard of this movement, but I was eager to join anything that would put me in contact with other women. ENTA's background appealed to me and I was the first to sign up. We decided to meet weekly at each other's homes without husbands and to talk about women topics. Herman was also trying to find friends and fit in at the college. He was happy that I was connected to a group of other women.
9: I was a math professor at the college. My friends were Bruce Carpenter, his husband, Dave Patton, a hippie philosophy professor, and the Van Cleve brothers, hippie counselors. You see, I had a choice of three groups that I could join. I could join the traditional folks, or the martini crowd, or the hippies. Of course, I chose the hippies. <laughs> Perhaps it was because of their back-to-the-earth movement. That was, that was closest to my farm background. I was happy Patsy was connecting to ENTA and the other women, but was somewhat suspicious about what was going
8: on over there. At our first meeting, the rules were established. No men allowed, and no discussion of our topics with our husbands. Weekly meetings, no kids or husbands talk. No arguing or debating. Instead, asking questions to clarify what we didn't understand. The focus would be on politics, our bodies, work, religion. Most of these I classified as men topics. With us listening to each other in an open, non-critical way, raising questions, respecting each other, and no sharing with our husbands about the topics or conversation. Together, we would all try to understand what feminism was. Most of us were imports to Harlan County. The topics were tough and quite unsettling for all of us. It shook my imagined world to the core. I came home deep in thought and sworn to secrecy by our rules. (laughs) I came home with questions I didn't even know I had and few answers. This was the first time I had ever questioned my assumptions about myself as a female. My life plan was to work at some random job till we had kids and then spend the rest of my life raising them. Mama believed you could not be an effective mother and have a job. ENTA challenged this assumption to the core, leaving me with more questions than answers.
9: Patsy became quieter and also more boldly assertive during this time. (laughs) While she did not directly reveal what was discussed at the group, I had little trouble guessing what was going on.
0: (laughs) Though she had
9: only housework and some volunteer work, she all of a sudden wanted me to do more housework. I felt myself stressed with my first job and felt this request was unfair. We argued fiercely, but I caved and helped. (laughs) Then when I did the work, it was all wrong for her. (laughs) Not only was I supposed to do the work, Mm -hmm. I was supposed to do it her way. Wow, was I pissed off then. (laughs) (laughs) She wanted out of the house more. She demanded more time with me and more sex (laughs) from me.
0: (laughs) Never. Our
9: first son arrived,
0: and oh, no. Pat wanted to take a new
9: opening at the college. Coming from a traditionalist viewpoint, I insisted she not take the job and tend to our son instead.
8: During the two years that our consciousness raising group met, I had been gradually transforming myself into a person who looked like a feminist. My first and most important Difficult decision was to throw away my bra. <laughs> Inta said bras were designed to accentuate the breast in order to attract men, and this action ultimately transformed women into sex objects. She said women needed to be accepted as they were rather than as sex objects. Giving up my bra was so difficult for me because I associated it with being a modern woman in contrast to my hillbilly mother. (laughs) My hillbilly mother had never worn a bra because she said it choked her. (laughs) I had finally learned my true bra size had purchased a couple of bras, and was glad to fit in with other women. (laughs) Now I was being asked to throw it away. In all honesty, I struggled with almost all the feminist view of women because it didn't fit with what I I had come to accept as a modern woman. In my eyes, Enta was calling for an old-fashioned image of a woman. Mountain women in particular.
9: As a traditional man, I disagreed with both Patsy and Anta on bras. I like bras, including push-up bras on other women, but I did not like the push-up bras on Patsy. It made me jealous the way other guys looked at Patsy's breasts and going braless made women, in my opinion, look untidy. All that jiggling. I guess I was more of a leg man then. In my opinion, I thought going braless made women into sex objects, but I didn't say much. The world, especially my world, was changing so rapidly. I just stood back on some of these issues concentrating on my work and watching the strange new world go by, The world was especially strange when I arrived home early one day and looked into the window. There were all of these feminists naked looking closely at their own vaginas with mirrors. I quickly hopped in the car and went down to the bar pool room in town and played pool until it was safe to come home. But that aside, I wasn't really just sitting and watching a strange world go by. Actually, my mind and values were changing quite a bit. I was beginning to see Patsy's need for stimulation and growth in her life. She needed what I was getting in a job. So I began to strongly encourage her to get training so she could get a good-paying, full-time, real job. I even said I could help out more with the housework and child-rearing to help her do it. There was one caveat, however. I wanted her to give me a bit more flexibility in how I did the housework. (laughs) Did the forks and spoons really
8: have to go in different
0: compartments?
8: (laughs) I was a member of this group for over two years until Herman took another job on the eastern shore of Virginia. By this time, the group dissolved because many of the 1971 new faculty moved on to other places and other colleges, uh, other colleges. eventually into husband and kids returned to Indiana University. After we left Southeast Community College, we ended up on the coast of Virginia. Feminism was beginning to decline, and I found myself thrust into a social world of military wives, another major adjustment for me. Certainly, these women were not feminists that I could see, but they were career-minded. Gradually, I put back on my bra and once again tried to blend in rather than stand out as a feminist. I also now had a child that was born naturally the feminist way, ENTA would also have been proud of me and my determination to breastfeeding. As before, I could not make this new career image work well for me either, but at least I knew a change would need to begin. I began graduate school with Herman's support, so I had less time to think about the image so much. I had to focus on getting a master's degree while now adapting to be a new, being a new parent. That was all the change I could handle at the time.
9: Patsy was taking graduate school at night and studying during the day. I had begun to do a bit more house and parenting work in Kentucky and was continuing to do so in Virginia. I supported the concept of help, but hell, this was more than I had bargained for. We had fights over who was supposed to do what. And we still had fights over how things were supposed to be done. Did I have to put up the dishes right away? Couldn't I wait until the ball game was over? <laughs> Patsy felt she was in the real throes of feminism now. It was no longer a philosophical debate for her. Feminism was boiling down to who took care of the child at home and who was the breadwinner. Meanwhile, I joined a men's consciousness-raising group. (laughs) Sure did. (laughs) Consisting of my male colleagues at the college in Virginia. While men were beginning to acknowledge that women needed change, men also needed change in order to fit the change that women were experiencing. Got that? They needed to take a new look at masculinity while not throwing away the concept. Men were questioning everything about what it was to be male and how they could break free of the rigid roles that confined men, such as work flexibility, choosing part-time work, and the expectation that men be the emotional strength for the family. We hated society's norm that men were always expected to hold things together by not showing their feelings. It also seemed that in accommodating women, we were giving up some of our inner confidence and strength. In our group, we discussed our aspirations and needs, how we hated housework, finance, and emotional pressures. We also discussed the need to be emotionally vulnerable and getting sexual needs met while our wives pursued school and careers. To that end, we discussed masturbation and soft pornography. <laughs> During the second year of my consciousness raising group, we read the book Iron John. Wow, this was a life opening experience. We learned to break free from some of the un- unintentional mistakes our mothers had made. How to get back our inner confidence and strength how to reconnect with our fathers and other men, how emotional vulnerability could coexist with inner strength. And especially, we learned how to regain the freedom and joy of our inner little boy, all this while while at the same time still loving and understanding the needs of our wives. Patsy didn't understand some of my expressions of my newly found maleness. She especially didn't understand when I joined the men's baseball league. Got a lot more involved with beer. Became a new age religious nut. And my participation in Native American rituals such as sweats. Likewise, she didn't understand my new interest in weird music. Some of it consisted of all drums. And my dancing naked around the campfire.
8: While I rarely think about this group now, I have to admit that it has been a major factor in my life. It changed everything about how I see the world, understand women as a group, having enormous influence on politics, women's issues, education, sports, medicine, and every aspect of society. I changed as a result of this group, and the truth is that this era changed all women forever. I eventually was able to bring a totally new understanding to my role of as mother, wife, and a professional. My 31 years as an award-winning professor were directly shaped by what I learned from this consciousness-raising group. My 45-year-old year marriage, two incredible children who were shaped by... Wait a minute. <laughs> shaped by learning. Looking back... I am so thankful that Intercarpenter crossed my path and challenged every belief I had about myself and about women. I'm proud to say I was part of the feminist movement.
9: I'm happy to say that I lasted through it.
0: <laughs>
8: Even
9: learned through it. And happy to say that I participated in the men's movement. These enabled me to change and grow. They helped me to actualize myself and to support my wife in actualizing herself. They helped me become a better teacher, husband, grandfather, grandfather, and citizen of the universe. Now, isn't that good for 60s terminology? I've still got that. (laughs) Like most of life, certain influences come and go, but it's those experiences that shake us to the core of our being that have the biggest impact. Now, where's my baseball glove, my pine cone cereal, my drums and my teepee? I'm older now, and now I like jiggling. I'd like it if you ladies started throwing those bras away again.
1: <laughs> the one and only permanent and Patsy Lawson. Thank Start these groups
8: back up. Yeah. <laughs> hey, and Emily, oh, yeah. my husband,
1: I signed him up for your group already. i got a pat. We're signing. Around, How's
8: he going to be about dancing around? he would probably be up for it. His mother, you
1: know. so <laughs> <laughs> a big round of applause for all of these amazing writers for sharing their stories. And a very very moving show um, tonight. Thank you so thank you all for coming out. Please come back and join us again on November 16th. That time of the month.
0: You heard, go spread the word They're funny, smart, and so absurd Happens every month It's the neatest Storytelling at its sweetest